from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to page 120 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they, had wa- when they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, who heard of Peter, who heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling to the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Miriam, at Princeton Seminary, you have to take a full class on how to read scripture. I'm pretty sure you could teach the class. (laughs) Thank you again for using your gifts and making the text come alive for us this morning. Our second text is uh, from the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, verses 22 to 30. It's also one of the lectionary texts, in addition to Acts 9, 36 to 43. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense? "'If you're the Messiah,' Tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, transformed, even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by inviting you to try a little uh, exercise. I wish we could do it now, but we don't have enough time. Uh, So you'll have to do it maybe later on uh, in the day or perhaps sometime this week. I'd invite you to sit down with something to write with and something to write on. And I would invite you to start at the top of the page. And at the top of the page, I'd invite you to write one life-defining relationship or one life-defining moment or one life-defining choice that you made in your past uh, that changed the direction of your life, something of great value, something of great importance in how you understand yourself, who you understand yourself to be. That's step one, to write down this life-defining relationship or life-defining moment or life-defining choice. And step two is to go down to the next line and write down the relationships and the experiences, the choices you made or the choices that someone else made that created the necessary conditions for that life-defining thing to happen. Think about all that needed to fall into place in order for that life-defining moment or experience or relationship happen. And then step three, four, five, and six, you can do it as many times as you want, is to keep asking that same question. What were the experiences or the relationships or the choices that were made to make this thing possible, which made this thing possible, which made this thing possible? An example I'll give you uh, is my relationship with Katie. Katie and I were married on June the 3rd, 2000. For that to have happened, she had to tell me on December 4th, 1999, on a pier at the Jersey Shore, that she wanted to marry me. (laughs) For that to have happened, we had to have dinner at John Harvard's Brew House in the main line of Philadelphia about a month earlier, and I had to say to her, I want to marry you, to which she said, I'm not ready yet. It only took a month. For that to have happened, we had to go on our first one-on-one date to an Italian restaurant in Philly where I impressed her greatly by ordering a half carafe of red wine. And for that to have happened, we had to have our first date, a double date with our dear friends Aisha and Carl who set it all up. And you can keep going back and back and back, eventually getting to how Jonathan Miller and Karen Batson met and how Norman Sundermeyer and Alice Pino met. And by doing an exercise like this one, you actually prove a pretty complex and complicated philosophical and mathematical theory. A theory and philosophy that was codified in the 17th century by by German Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. And his theory, as it's become known today, is the theory of continuity. 
the theory of continuity. Leibniz once famously wrote, nature does not take leaps. Nature does not take leaps. And in this very rational approach based on the work originally by Johannes Kepler and Nicholas of Cusa, Leibniz said that everything that exists, everything that exists, exists in an unbroken or uninterrupted continuum. Natural processes and mathematics function on a continuum. They're dependent upon that which came before. I'm thinking about Leibniz uh, this morning and his theory of continuity because in so many ways, in so many ways, the book of Acts, the second volume from the gospel writer we know as Luke, I think it also proves the philosopher's point. One of the fundamental purposes of the book of Acts, one of the fundamental reasons I think we have it in our, our canon, is to demonstrate the continuity of the ministry and the life of the early church with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Luke wants to make a connection to who Jesus was and who Jesus is and the way in which that community came into being. That there is continuity with the way the early church was born, the way it grew up with the ministry of Jesus himself. Now if you turn your attention back uh, to the text that Miriam read for us uh, this morning, Acts 9, 36 to 43. I, I want to use this text to demonstrate this theory of, of, of continuum, of this continuity uh, in literary form. And so in order to do that, we're not only going to look at that Acts text uh, from the ninth chapter, but we're also going to invite into the conversation another text, this one from the Gospel of John, but not the one I read. We'll get to that a little later. But one chapter beyond the chapter I just read from, the 11th chapter, and a famous story many of us know, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, from the dead. And what I want to do uh, is highlight the continuity between the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and the story of Peter raising Tabitha from the dead. So the first thing we need to recognize is that in both stories, Peter and Jesus are far off from the action. They're not near where the action is, is taking place. Jesus is then asked by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, to come urgently to the city of Bethany, whereas Peter is requested by unnamed characters from this church in Joppa uh, to come immediately as well. Number two, they're both called, as they are called to come with haste, uh, they're called to attend a pressing matter. It's a life and death situation that they need to be concerned about, that they are moving toward. It's the illness and death of someone who is beloved within their community. Someone is beloved within their community. And both Peter and Jesus arrive on the scene, and as they do, they are encountered by mourners, by those who are grieving the death of each beloved. Number three, as the story continues, what we realize is that in the shadow of death, they both pray. They both pray. Jesus prays and, and Peter prays. Number four, at the conclusion of his prayer, Peter said, Tabitha, get up. And at the conclusion of his prayer, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. 
As Tabitha opened her eyes, number five, Peter gave her his hand to help her to her feet. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, remember, he was still dressed in burial linen. And Jesus asked the community to help untie him and let him go. And finally, number six, in both stories, both stories, we're told that many people came to faith as word spread about this mighty act of God. The continuity between these two stories is uncanny. And what we have to remember is that they're written by two different people. They're written by two different people. They're written by the gospel writer John and written by the gospel writer Luke. The continuity between these two stories is uncanny, and it reminds us of what Luke is trying to accomplish, what Luke is trying to tell the world about this church, about this disciple named Peter, is that the church's ministry and Peter's ministry are both a continuation of Christ's ministry. This is really, really important. It's not as if the early church was starting something brand new. The early church was actually continuing the legacy of Christ something that he already started. They're part of the continuum of ministry that Jesus has offered. So before I close the sermon, I'd like to offer just two questions for all of us to consider as we contemplate uh, this call to community. The first question is, is one of honest introspection. And it goes something like this. Where in your life right now is there discontinuity with the life of Christ? Like if you were going to have an honest conversation with yourself or an honest conversation in prayer, where could you point and say, yeah, there's discontinuity. There's discontinuity with, with how I'm showing up in the world and how Jesus showed up in the world. There's discontinuity with the way I'm being human, with the way that Jesus was human. Perhaps some of the discontinuity is preferencing an expedited way of living with a schedule too full and way too chaotic that you have no time for regular worship or regular prayer or even Sabbath rest. Or perhaps it's a dogged pursuit of more money or more power or more status that you lack continuity with the one that said, if you're going to be great, you have to be servant of all. The one who said you can't worship God and money. Perhaps you've embraced the spirit of judgment in this season. A spirit of criticism or even hopelessness. Instead of embracing Christ's spirit of forgiveness or his spirit of joy. Or a spirit of expectant hope. Perhaps you are in a really dark spot right now in your life. Perhaps you would even go as far as to say that you hate yourself. And you can no longer see the image of God that is at the very core of your being. Or perhaps you're apathetic or indifferent to injustices of the world instead of embracing the call of the prophet Micah to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Friends, in questions like these, when I ask them to myself in my own spiritual life, I am reminded that I have agency. I'm reminded that we all have agency, that we all have choice, and what is more, we also have God's grace 
God's grace that, that, that leads us in embracing our agency and embracing our will to choose what kind of life we're going to live. A life that has continuity with the life of Christ or a life that does not. Where in your life in these days, right now, on May the 8th, 2022, where is there discontinuity with your life and the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ? That's the first question. The second question uh, is this. What does it mean to have continuity with Christ today? I mean, how, how do we actually know in a world that is so diverse and so plural, where so many voices say, this is the authentic way, or this is the right way, how do we know that we're actually part of the continuum of Christ's ministry? How, how do we know that we have continuity with who Christ is? I was thinking some about this question and applying it to my own experience as a Protestant. Uh, you know, the history of Protestantism uh, can be understood, at least in part, through the lens of the pursuit of continuity. The pursuit of continuity with, with Jesus and what we might call authentic Christianity, right? There's not a single denomination, including the Presbyterian denomination, there's not a single non-denominational church that has started without the belief that they were on the precipice of getting that much closer to authentic Christianity than the group before. I mean, every denomination, including ours, every non-denominational church has started not because they, we thought, oh, well, they do it much better. We're going to do it much worse over here. No, it's because we had this sense that that we're hearing the voice of the shepherd that much more clearly than those who have come before us. I think this is one of the most challenging texts in John 10, where Jesus talks about some folks not being his sheep so they don't hear his voice. Oftentimes we use this text, many of us have used this text to justify our own positions about being that much closer to authentic Christianity, about being that much closer to Christ's authentic ministry. We hear the shepherd's voice better than you do. Maybe you've said that at some point. Maybe you've felt that at some point. Maybe you've heard that from someone else at some point. Somehow, as I go back to Acts 9... And I think about this character that Miriam introduced us to in the reading of this story. Somehow, I don't think that Tabitha would use the words of Jesus as a weapon or as a dividing line. This celebrated matriarch, Tabitha, who's part of the church in Joppa, I, I couldn't imagine her speaking like that. That I have my ear attuned to the voice of Jesus better than, than you do. Now, we don't have a lot to go on here, but what we do have in this brief introduction, first and foremost, is that she was known by both her Aramaic and her Greek name. Now, this is a little unusual in the Bible. We don't often get an insight to sort of the multilinguist presentation, rather, of people's names. Her name is Tabitha in Aramaic and Dorcas in Greek. 
And now what's really interesting is that this church, and some of you have actually been uh, where they believe this church was, uh, is in the town of Joppa. Joppa is now part of Tel Aviv. It's on the water. It's a, it's a port town, which means that it was a metropolitan area, that there were people from all walks of life. There were Jews who spoke Aramaic. There were uh, Jews that spoke Greek. There were Gentiles that spoke Greek from all across the world. And as this church is coming of age, I wonder, I wonder if the reason she's known by both her names is because she was a bridge builder. Like, I wonder if she was the person in the church that brought all of these disparate people together into one fellowship. Like, I wonder if she was the one that pursued the ministry of reconciliation from these, with these folks from all walks of life. I wonder if that's why they, they mentioned both her names, because she was known to these groups as one who brings people together. What's more, Tabitha is described to us as a woman who put her faith into practice. Not only do we see it in her works, but we also see it in the way Peter comes to her and by God's grace raises her from the dead. And so what Luke is actually trying to say here, I believe, is Luke is lifting up Tabitha as an example and saying, look at her as she continues the ministry of Christ with her generosity and with her humility. Not only does she continue the ministry of Christ, but the continuation of resurrection power is made known in her life. When Peter says, get up, rise up, stand up, that she not only continues Jesus' ministry, but Jesus' resurrection power continues in her. And I think that's what Luke is trying to say to the church of the first century and the church of the 21st century is that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. This isn't something that we've created on our own, that we're continuing the work and resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our lives. So how do you know that you're part of the continuum? How do you know that you have continuity with Christ and his ministry? I think one of the ways we do it, and on a day like today when we're introduced to Tabitha, is we look her way. We pay attention to her especially on this Mother's Day as we think of the, the mothers of our lives and the matriarchs of the church like Tabitha, we look to her and we say, we know the one who hears the voice of the shepherd is the one who's humble. We know the one who hears the voice of the shepherd is the one who's generous. We know the one who hears the voice of the shepherd is the one who takes care of the most vulnerable in their midst, in this case, the widows of her church. We know the one who listens to the voice of the shepherd is the one who pursues reconciliation and inclusion within the community of faith. The gospel continuity that we long for is one that we see in a character like Tabitha. And she's set before us today as a model of faith, a model of what it looks like when one really does hear the voice of of the shepherd. And so my encouragement is a simple one. May we look to Tabitha. If we want to know what it looks like to continue the ministry of Christ, look to her. And by looking to her, what we're really doing is looking to her Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen.